Section 28 of Open the Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lena Emsley. Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. Book 3, Chapter 3, Part 1. 1. When the ugly flutter of death had subsided, Joanna, with mounting terror, discovered that her world was changed. The mask of stability had been stripped from outward things. Inherent deathliness was everywhere made visible. Even her own firm self seemed to be crumbling within her. Desperately, and with every subtlety at her command, she fought against the dissolution which threatened on her return to London. She kept the outer shell of her existence intact, the shell composed of work, duties, human contacts, the care of her room, her clothes, her body, and because all meaning had gone from these components, because her work, though there was more need now than at any former time that she should bestir herself in making a livelihood, was loathsome to her, and seemed particularly useless, this was a kind of heroism. Unhappily, it was a heroism that demanded all her strength and emptied her of real courage. Under the strain of keeping up appearances, her resolve to force a choice upon Lewis melted quite away. Instead, she turned frantically to him for help. Lewis had never lied to her, thought she, never pretended. He had been frank in disbelief. In him might she not find at least a foothold of sure ground amid this quaking bog of death? Surely enough, it looked at first as if she might get from him the succour she needed for life. Regarding the incident at the private view, he had that same day written to her, and this letter, full of love and self-loathing, had reached her on the morning of Julie's funeral. At their next meeting some weeks later, a new flower of passion had blossomed between them. Now she longed for him bitterly all the hours they were apart, while Lewis, on his side, laid caution aside in flying to her. But a fearful thing had happened between them. Now, when she lay in his arms, there came always a vision of her mother's face, dying or dead, the heavy frown, the altered mouth, the long, dreadful breath. And when he left her, she was cold as earth. She could hardly bear it. Yet even the inner deathliness of his embraces still seemed better than the final outward rending of losing him. Did she not love him? Her ideals were all for faithfulness in love, and her cowardice pointed the same way. Did he not still need her, still keep the power to make her tremble, though with a touch, a look? If that went, what was left? So she was beset on both sides by fear and she survived from day to day, from week to week, by sheer stiffness of will. 2. Early in October, Georgie became the joyful mother of a son. Even before Julie's death, Joanna had taken to spending much of her time with Georgie. The sisters had sat and sewed together many hours, making baby clothes, and they had spoken of all the things sisters would inevitably speak of on such occasions. The elder had been the more voluble, being, like Aunt Purdy, that kind of talker that needs little more than a listener. But Joanna, too, had borne her part, 
and one day she had come very near to a full disclosure about Lewis and herself. She would certainly have made it so, had not it been for her continual and very sensitive consciousness of Max in the background. As it was, she left Georgie in no doubt that she had had the misfortune to love a married man, and the temerity to make her love the pivot of her life. Immediately after their mother's death, the two, as was natural, saw still more of each other. Joanna was still able, spasmodically at least, to believe that her world was shaken by the ordinary course of bereavement. Her mother, she told herself, had stood more than could have been guessed for the external seemliness and the underlying coherence of things, and now that her mother was gone, these were challenged. But here was Georgie, herself soon to be a mother. Here was Georgie, eloquent and beaming, a very embodiment, if ever there was one, of the affirmation that all was solidly established as before. In Georgie's company, Joanna was able to regard her own deathly knowledge as mere sickly grieving fancies, and this was what she frantically sought. Then, in October, the baby boy, the treasure of treasures, arrived, and amid that wonder and rejoicing and piercing wistfulness of envy, Joanna thought she perceived the way by which she might save herself. Though it came to her apparently as a revealing flash from without, she had no sooner measured its importance than she knew it had lain in her heart for years past. Why else had she drawn such peculiar comfort from the presence of Ollie and Roddy in Chapel Court? Why had the tending of their bodies so deeply stirred her own flesh? Why now did the handling of this small new creature, Georgie's firstborn, send so strange a quivering up her arms to her heart, and from her heart back along her limbs to the very hollows of her feet? The answer, she thought, was clear. If only she might bear Lewis a child. Far from raising new problems in Joanna's confused and tortured life, this idea offered her a well-nigh perfect solution. Not only did it promise an enforced consummation of her love for Lewis, but the very material difficulties, which might have appeared as obstacles to another woman, were to her so many spurs urging her on. They attracted, because they seemed to show the direction in which effort would be worth while. As for the immediate conventional bearings of the situation, she had no fears. Her mother was dead her brothers away, Georgie married and happy. And just because she was herself ready for all risks, she knew she could be prudent. Within the first hour in which she saw herself as a mother, a complete programme of action arranged itself in her mind. She would go, she told herself, to Aunt Purdy's mountaintop to have her child. If Lewis chose to cleave to her, it would be salvation for him as well. If he dared not, she would let him go there would be no alternative. Besides, with a girl-babe like little Ollie, or a man-child like Roddy, sprung from their love, she would have her place in that world which now was slipping from beneath her feet. That Lewis might refuse a demand at once so imperious and so reasonable as this seemed to her she would hardly admit. He must see clearly that it was no more than her right. Hers was the ultimate undertaking— his only whatever share in the responsibility he freely desired. To any other view, she closed her eyes. At the same time, even in her exultation, some instinct warned Joanna to go cautiously to work. 
men were so strange one never knew with what unexpected incomprehensible prejudice a man might regard so perfectly straightforward a matter and she was in this man's power with every logical and passionate argument on her side he could yet deny her the one vital thing left in life this made her very wary and she waited for her moment without saying a word to him of what filled her mind sometimes she thought he looked at her curiously three but one day in the christmas holidays when georgie's baby was three months old the sisters planned a shopping expedition on his behalf already he was growing out of all his clothes and would presently be ready for short coating the night before joanna had lain long awake thinking and thinking of her mother was it after all her death that had changed the face of the world was it not rather the manner of her death she had gone without once attaining the full stature of her soul without once uttering clearly the word it should have been hers to utter with all her struggles her nobility her sacrifices she was unfulfilled she was like the sides of an arch that fall in together in a heap because the keystone is missing yet who had faith if not she what had been wrong all at once joanna turned in accusation upon her dead father in spite of the unkind childish dream she had kept his memory all these years as of someone good beyond question almost godlike nor had julie ceased to foster to the last this ideal image in her children's minds but now this with other security gone from her life and in that quiet midnight hour joanna asked herself if he was not greatly to be blamed was it not their father who had failed them all was the keystone of the arch of fulfilment not placed in the hands of the male she condemned him pitilessly as only a woman can condemn a parent it had been all wrong that apparently happy and peaceful marriage wrong from beginning to end there had been no beginning and no end there had been only a confused and accidental issue of wrongness of which she joanna was a part she remembered the words in sin did my mother conceive me why not in sin did my father beget me and in her very bones she could feel at work that reward of sin which is death she blamed her father but amid the heat and misery of her indictment sholto's face so long vanished from earth rose cold and sweet and patient before his daughter and he refuted the charge it was long years since she had shut the door against him in her dreams now it seemed as if he had been waiting and waiting there outside for her mature reproach and was not this patience of his his everlasting vindication oh the patience the heart-breaking awful patience of the dead oh that face with its sweet sunshiny smile and its eyes so puzzled and afraid yet innocent like the eyes of a child had not he also he asked her been denied fulfilment if julie's soul through him had suffered a tragic negation what of his own extreme irredeemable pathos of incapacity weeping joanna turned her face upon the bed and weeping she forgave her father and begged his forgiveness 
Next day, she tried to discover her trouble to Georgie. She was almost speechless with shyness, but as they were sitting alone together at Duntavi, drinking cups of chocolate before starting for town to buy young Sholto's shortings, she managed to put into poor words some part of her midnight thoughts. The sisters in their black dresses sat facing each other across a small table in the green and white morning room. Georgie, lolling back a little in her chair, showed all the pride of young and fruitful womanhood. Her eyes were absorbed and manger-worshipping, her face ruddy with health, her breasts large and sweet with milk. Joanna, as she rather painfully spoke, leaned forward, her elbows on the table and the tips of her fingers pressed against her temples, as if the pulse there needed protection. And though she still looked very girlish, she was white-faced and harassed, with a faint shadow under each cheekbone, and between her eyes the same sad vertical line of perplexity which had been there at the time of Mario's death. Georgie broke in upon her halting questions with such ready and emphatic replies that Joanna immediately regretted having spoken. Having spoken, she would listen. But here was no help to be had. Georgie, as her sister now realised, was enclosed and impenetrably protected by the immediate experience of her own motherhood. She was set on seeing in their mother's death both release and happy fulfilment. For any declarations of imperfections in this world, she was ready with assurances of perfections in the next. Above all, she was generously up in arms against each word that might be construed as criticism of the dead. She would remember, she insisted, raising her voice, none but the good and beautiful things about her parents, because only the beautiful and good things were real. Faults and failures were best forgotten, for the simple reason that they were of no vital importance. They had no lasting truth. They were but passing aberrations, which, if we had more faith, we should not even see. Was Georgie right? Joanna's beseeching eyes rested on her, as she discoursed more and more eloquently upon the non-existence of evil. And the younger sister felt so greatly at a disadvantage that she was almost inclined to repudiate her own experience. Was truth not best proved by such a union of physical health and spiritual satisfaction? Was Georgie not happier, more useful, immeasurably fuller of faith and certainty than she? Yet, for all that, she could only look blank and miserable, feeling as Georgie's spirit soared that her own, by that very action, was being thrust further into darkness. There is a buoyant and genuine faith which, while ostensibly stimulating the faith of others, seems only to be able to swell itself at their expense, and while Georgie glowed and spoke of their mother, it was to Joanna as if the coffin lid were being screwed down afresh, this time more sacrilegiously on Julie's soul. On their way to the shops, the elder sister, warm with the consciousness that she had given from her own rich store to one in distress, began rosily to sketch out her son's future and her plans for his upbringing. She was, she declared, ambitious in the best sense of the word. In baby Sholto, the fine religious motive of his grandparents was to be mingled with his father's agnostic humanitarianism. But above all things, he was to have absolute tolerance inculcated. From an early age, he should develop grace of body and a sense of rhythm 
by means of the very latest method, the lamentable absence of which in Georgie's own childhood must entirely account for her own abortive musical attainment. She stated now, by the light of this new discovery, that even in Dresden the teaching had been completely at fault. Sholto was never to be punished or forced to act against his inclinations, but would gain his education in nature's own way by receiving full and truthful answers to his questions. Georgie herself might be a stupid failure, she laughed happily, in everything she had tried, save motherhood. But what did that matter? All that mattered was the new generation, which was so wonderfully to profit by our mistakes. They would do, and do far better all that we had left undone. It would have surprised Georgie, could she possibly have known how every word of cheer she uttered struck a fresh blow at the last of her sister's hopes. Joanna herself did not immediately guess the collapse of that hope. At first she only knew that as she listened her heart grew more and more like lead in her breast, and she wondered vaguely why this should be, when she had a fair degree of sympathy with Georgie's theories of education. But in Regent Street, while they were buying little wincy dresses and woolly jackets and boots and cunning caps for baby, it broke upon her so suddenly that for the space of about a minute the shop and all it contained whirled about her like a tornado. Not for her that newly springing and so fair-seeming hope that by her own achievement of motherhood she might make good. Not any longer for her. Here was Georgie, turning each purchase over, again and again reminding Joanna of their mother as she tested its softness against her cheek. Ah, there it was. Their mother had done this for them, and her mother for her, always with the same eager and touching confidence in the next generation. And what was to come of it? Nothing. Nothing, because it was based on a lie. Nothing, because it was a shirking of the personal issue. Nothing, because it was a last, most exquisite cowardice. Shaking all over, Joanna examined some white lute ribbon her sister had put just then into her hand, and she gave as her opinion that it would be quite strong enough for binding flannel pilchers. No, if the children born and unborn were to be served fairly, one must utter clearly and fearlessly one's own word of truth in one's own lifetime. And against this utterance, hard enough in itself, the whole world was combined in the most tyrannical of all combinations, the combination of the past with the future generation. What a plausible and cruel trick was there! It gagged one. Yes, that was the right shade of blue for a sash. Stifling, if it could, even the word of failure. For failure might be one's word. All could not blossom but all could reject the greater disaster of unacknowledgment. And this was what Georgie, with her light talk of failure, would not do. She would sooner deny meaning to their mother's life than admit its failure. She would deny her own failure by childbearing and the expedient of shifting her fulfilment from her personal hands to the impersonal hands of the future. And this she would call by the name of faith. All round her she shed easy, enthusiastic denial, and Joanna shrank back, forsaken and unsheltered. 
Such enthusiasm only increased the menace she felt everywhere. By the time Sholto's new sash was measured and cut, her disbelief in that fair hope by which she had lately been living was complete. It was finished and hard in the darkness, a jewel of unfaith. They left the shop, and as they walked, hugging their parcels from Piccadilly Circus to their station in Leicester Square, she looked with strange, terror-stricken eyes at the faces of the passing people. There were the satisfied, solid ones, the flighty, knowing ones, the benevolent, the wicked, the careless, the merely anxious. How they had impressed her once, taken as a whole, and never so much as when her own course was most erratic. Once she had believed that somehow, between them all, they possessed human truth and knowledge. Today, for the first time, she saw them as a flock of blind things, each one trusting implicitly, as she had done, in the corporate wisdom of all the other blind ones. Lewis blind, her mother blind. The sadness of it almost killed her. "'Isn't life too gorgeous, too wonderful?' exclaimed Georgie, breaking in upon her thoughts at that instant. And in her exultation Georgie shouted, so that people turned their heads, some smiling indulgently, some with contempt, others with a peculiar frown of anger. And I feel the whole time that darling father and mother, united now, are watching over us, rejoicing so lovingly over the progress of the next generation. Don't you, Joey dear? The other did not at once reply. With the bitterness of spears behind her eyeballs, she saw again a strange indignation in her mother's dying features. Then, at the very last, when the poor tongue could only babble senselessly, had Julie not been trying, perhaps, to leave her special word of truth with her children? Anyhow, at this moment, just as the sisters were passing the steps of the Empire Theatre, Joanna came by the absolute knowledge that if she did not give Georgie the lie here and now, their mother's prayers had been in vain. In understanding and obedience, therefore, she fell at her mother's feet. She would do it. She was afraid, however, horribly timid of Georgie. I don't believe a single word of all you have said today. Painfully as these words were wrenched out, and appalled as Joanna was by their clumsiness and crudity, they were spoken distinctly but the elder merely looked at her younger sister, first in astonishment at this unexpected rudeness, then, seeing the quivering lips, in affectionate pity. Later, when Georgie began soothingly and deliberately to speak of trifles, Joanna knew that she was being humoured, probably by her brother-in-law's advice, as one in a morbid and overwrought condition. 4. Joanna knelt by the hearth in the archway room and piled up her fire between the hobs of the little dog-grate as high as she dared. It was bitter, cold January weather, and she expected Lawrence Urquhart in the course of the evening. Since Julie's death, Joanna's oft-fading friendship with Lawrence had put forth fresh shoots. On her return from Glasgow, he had appeared at her side with a quiet offering of understanding that could not be refused. As concerned love, she believed, sometimes with a pang of which she was ashamed, 
that he had gone from her, but all the more readily did she admit and even cling to the new bond he had unobtrusively created. It was something different from the former spasmodic attraction, so that she no longer scrupled to make use of his steady kindness in any small practical ways which might relieve her extremity. Also he had become an acknowledged friend of the family. She often saw him now at Georgie's house, where he seemed to enjoy talking with Max, and more rarely he would come to Chapel Court. Earlier that same evening, Lawrence had been called to the bar, and at his invitation, Joanna had gone to see the ceremony in Middle Temple Hall. Its boredness had somewhat disappointed her. From her perch in the high, cramped cage of the gallery, she had watched the little doll-like figures advancing in wig and gown to sign the roll as their names were called, and she had hardly been able to distinguish her friend among them. When it was over, and she had squeezed down the corkscrew staircase in a press of womenfolk, she saw that Lawrence had already almost made his way to her through the crowd and the congratulations. It was then that she was surprised by quite a new view of him. The sculptural folds of the gown gave a dignity that his slight figure needed, and beneath the formality of the white horsehair wig, all his features were sharpened into a more insistent yet sensitive maleness. This she had seen, or rather felt, but she had felt also that Lawrence had never been so far removed from her as at that moment. He was gone utterly into the unknowable world of men. Nothing of her world could touch him. She was alien, even hostile to the strongly suppressed excitement in his face and movements. For a minute they had stood talking together. The call dinner, Lawrence said, would last till about nine o'clock, after which the other members of his mess would want to go to a music hall. He himself didn't much like the idea. For one thing, he had been half crazy with neuralgia all afternoon. Still, it would be better than to return straight from the dinner to his rooms in Chancery Lane. And when Joanna, in commiseration, she too had suffered of late from neuralgia, suggested Fenicetton with tea by her fireside later in the evening, he thanked her gladly. So she had stacked up the fire, for though her room with its windows vis-à-vis -vis was ideal in the summer, it was searched by shrewd draughts during the winter, and she had lighted the candles on the mantelpiece and drawn the curtains close, and set out the tea-things on table and hob. She had changed her day-dress, too, for a thinner one of black silk, of the kind that floats and does not rustle. All these festive and hospitable things she had done. At the same time her mood was despondent, and she dully regretted having asked Lawrence at all. When ten o'clock came, however, it had been six when she left the temple, and there was still not a sign of her visitor. Her depression showed no lifting tendency. It was indeed considerably increased. A further restless quarter of an hour passed, and she could settle to nothing. She had just made up her mind to go to bed, and was in the act of blowing out the first candle, when she heard the belated steps of Lawrence passing under the archway. Was it the frost, she wondered when he came in, that had given him such a cheerful, unusual starriness? As they shook hands, she realised that he was, for once, quite divested of his shyness, and so seemed other than himself. While she busied herself with the tea, which she was making after the Russian fashion, in tumblers with slices of lemon, Lawrence sat down, 
and passed his hand over his hair as if he feared it might be disordered. But it was perfectly smooth, reflecting the candlelight almost as well as the polished stove. How is your neuralgia? asked Joanna, observing the action but mistaking its motive. My neuralgia? He repeated the question as if at a loss for a moment. Oh, it's gone, thank you. Quite better. I had forgotten about it. He refused the tabloids which he had laid ready for him, but drank her tea thirstily. It was good of you to ask me, he said happily, pushing his second empty glass aside and leaning back in a posture of greater physical unconsciousness than was usual with him. I'm afraid I'm rather late, but it was impossible to get away sooner. Call dinners are long affairs. You were only to come if you felt inclined, Joanna reminded him. I had almost given you up and was going to bed. I wanted to come, you stupid, he retorted in calm good humour, and clearly without the slightest consciousness of rudeness. I'm glad you didn't quite give me up, he continued, not noticing her look. It's something not quite to be given up, isn't it? As he seemed brightly unabashed to be waiting for an answer, Joanna murmured in a neutral voice that she didn't know. It had struck her for the first time that perhaps he had drunk too much at dinner. This would account for the lyrical quality in his appearance. You are cheerful tonight, she said, staring at the flame of a candle she was snuffing. The room was lighted only by candles and by the splendid, leaping glow of the fire. Lawrence might well have been warned by her tone, but he merely recrossed his feet and looked more cheerful still. I am, he returned. Why shouldn't I be? I've had a good dinner. I'll never have to go in for another examination in my life. It's a pleasure to me to sit here by your fire with you. Why shouldn't I be cheerful? No reason, admitted Joanna, and having trimmed all four of her wicks on the mantelpiece, she sat down again and leaned her head back against her chair. At that ever so slight but desolate movement, Lawrence changed his own attitude. Now he bent forward, resting his elbows on his knees. But you aren't, he said. I'm afraid you're sad. It was all the kinder of you to ask me this evening. I wish I could cheer you up. Won't you tell me what troubles you so? Complete silence and stillness were the only reply. The young man looked his fill at the heart-breaking shape opposite, apparently so intimate in the firelight, yet really so far out of his reach, at the dear brown head outlined against the linen chair-back, at the disconsolate hands folded languidly in her lap. And though his immediate feeling was one of concern for her, he savoured at that moment both her soft dejection and her damnable obstinacy. Are you grieving very much for your mother still? he asked kindly. His beloved stirred slightly and looked at him. It isn't exactly grieving for her, she made answer. I'm glad for her, and for myself that she's dead. No, it's that everything else seems to have collapsed with her. Perhaps that's a good thing, said Lawrence after a few moments. I can't help thinking it is. Joanna's languor vanished as she sat up in her place. It was not the first time Lawrence had thus disturbed and upset her all of a sudden. It's all very well for you, she exclaimed resentfully. Why all very well? I lost my mother too, he returned almost roughly. 
I know, but... And I'll tell you what, he interrupted her with vehemence, using strangely enough a phrase which Joanna had long ago come to associate with Lewis. I loved her, but I never knew till she was dead what an injury she had done me, and I couldn't forgive her. I don't know if I forgive her now. She had drained me. All my life she had drained me. I can't think of another word, of my manhood, till it was almost gone. She lost me you. Don't speak. I know what I'm talking about. She lost me you. You did right not to take me then. I doubt whether even you could have saved me. I had to have everything collapse round me too. You look doubtful. I tell you, it was so. Carl could tell you. Still, Joanna persisted, after a short, astonished pause. You had your world of men to fly to, and you found it solid. That seems always left to a man. What you once said about being in the stream of things. Look at you tonight. You are quite happy. But what you have wouldn't satisfy me. Quite happy, am I? asked Lawrence appearing to examine the backs of his fingernails with the greatest attention. You seem to be. A minute ago you said you were, didn't you? He raised his eyes at this. I said no such thing. I said cheerful. I'm sorry. Is there so much difference in your case? With a violent gesture of his right hand, Lawrence jumped to his feet. Why are you so hateful to me? he demanded. "'So perfectly brutal and hateful. "'You know, no one better, that I need you. "'Not for happiness, happiness be damned, but just for life. "'Yet you shut me out, and are vile to me into the bargain. "'You talk about the world of men. "'Don't you know it's only a makeshift without the other you won't give me?' "'I can't give you what's not in my power.' "'Ah, there you are. You can't give.' No, I ought not to have asked you to give. You're much too fond of giving, Joanna, and your kind of giving, if you only knew, is sheer robbery. Give, give, give to the poor man, when in reality it all goes to feed your own egoism. You are all self-will. Try to take from a man for a change, then perhaps you will learn really to give. Carl was right in what he used to say of you. What did he say? He said that in love you were like... Lawrence considered a moment. Carl's way of talking is apt to sound rude to anyone else's mouth. Never mind, what did he say? Joanna insisted. He said you were like a clod of earth trying to give itself to a seed by shoving itself inside the husk. I believe myself, added Lawrence with growing animation, that you work with all your strength for the very opposite of your nature's true desire. So I am a clod, am I? asked Joanna, her eyes dancing with spite. Once I was a juggler, now I am a clod. Shall I tell you what you are? If you like. You are? You've been drinking too much. True, but I am not drunk. Perhaps not. I didn't say so. Joanna spoke coldly. Her voice seemed to be holding her skirts round her as if they might touch him. I shouldn't have come here if I had been drunk. You know that, said Lawrence. I did feel braver than usual, and thought it would be good to be with you, feeling brave for once. Now I've begun, I may as well finish. I dare say that's nonsense about the clod. Though remember that for the seed, 
the clod has all the sky in it and the rain and sun and sea and wind as well as the earth images though are apt to be misleading who knows perhaps you are the seed and i the clod i dare say what i am certain of more certain than i ever was before is that i need you i need to hide myself and to lose myself in you if you knew what my life is like these days all that can be said is that i have the grace to be sure it isn't life and i do believe you need me too my poor hopeless pet let me call you this once if you are getting on well without me i wouldn't say a word but you aren't getting on whether i am getting on or not doesn't help in this why not it should i love someone else you see it's no use and you knew it before Carl must have i don't believe it he interrupted doggedly what don't you believe that you know anything whatever about love yet she turned from him perhaps that can only be proved by my faithfulness she murmured and it shall be lawrence groaned joanna you are such a fool i almost wish i didn't love you she pondered a moment then you would soon stop loving me if you knew the kind of person i am she declared and to lawrence's amazement she suddenly smiled as she spoke why what do you mean he asked i'm really bad she said a little more seriously but still with a peculiar ungovernable flippancy how bad are you just bad tell me she paused a moment and then looking steadily away from him spoke in a different quiet voice so bad that i can be attracted by men i don't love at all it was the man's turn to smile now but joanna did not see him who says that's bad he asked everybody in a woman sometimes said lawrence all the lines of his body expressing relief from strain sometimes you shock me you have always seemed so complete to me so much a woman and then you say a thing like that which one would think could only come from a schoolgirl he waited but there was no answering smile on joanna's face instead a quiver passed over it and the bright colour that had swept into her cheeks ebbed quickly under his eye would he never understand what she was trying to say i should have said she persevered clutching all her courage and now indeed she was cruel in all conscience now indeed she chose her words with merciless directness i should have said that though i belong to one man and always must belong to him i'm capable of feeling strongly attracted by others from the first word of this speech she had kept her eyes immovably fixed upon lawrence's which at the moment were intently regarding the flame on one of the candles but a minute before he had taken the candlestick in his hand and with a match had been kneading the rim of the hot wax into a scalloped frill all round the small erect flame illumined the irises of his eyes joanna could see how surprisingly light they were in colour like peaty pools she could even see the darker flecks in the iris which made her think of trout in a burn 
and not a flicker of the eyelids could have escaped her vigilance. But she had had her say, and there had not been the faintest tremor. The hand which had been wielding the match became perfectly still. That was all. The eyes and face, still already, became stillness incarnate. Then he put the candlestick back in its place, and stopped so that his face was hidden. He stopped ostensibly that he might throw into the fire the match that had dropped from his fingers. The instant she had spoken, Joanna felt happier. Lawrence's stillness was too extreme to deceive her. She knew by it for certain that her disclosure had been a disclosure indeed, and that it had hurt him. All the more had she been all this time to blame. Now that was said which should in fairness have been said long ago. It was too bad that he should suffer, but she was thankful that he could take it like a man. Suppose he had winced and wept and reproached her, as on that last ride. When he faced her again, his lips shook, but his words came composedly enough. I take back what I said about your needing me, he said slowly. I was wrong, seemingly. Please be generous and put it down to the fact that I had been drinking more than was good for me. I should perhaps have been wiser not to have come tonight. Perhaps. Still, I wanted you to know. Joanna's gaze was almost fawning on him now for a kind look, though to do her justice there was no appeal in her detached voice. It merely served her in the making of a true statement. If you are satisfied, that's something, said Lawrence, his eyes flicking her like a whip. I think I'll wend my way homeward now, he continued. It must be late. Even as he spoke, he wondered at the absurdity of his using that absurd phrase now for the first time since his school days. Why wend his way tonight? My watch has stopped, Joanna said helplessly, looking at her wrist. But it's only about eleven, I believe. The clock on the mantelpiece is slow. He studied his own watch, as if the time were a matter of real importance to him. Five minutes to eleven, I make it. As they said good-night, both their voices plodded along the dead level of exhaustion. But Joanna must go down the dark little staircase with her guest to see him off. Just as if their evening had been of the happiest kind, she must open the door for him and warn him of the three crooked steps. There was a moon somewhere low in the sky behind the tall houses, but the court was full of treacherous shadows. Lawrence lost no time in parting from her. He made nothing of the steps, and almost before she realised he was gone, she heard the echo of his quick retreating tread. When that had quite died away in the street outside, she went forlornly up to her bedroom, as one who has lost a friend. An old-fashioned expression of her mother's came appositely into her mind. She felt, she told herself, like a knotless thread. End of section 28